Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Guthrie's composition, Pastures of Plenty, is a ballad from the British Isles, now centuries old. No one really knows how old the song is. The original tune was called Pretty Polly, and it was known well in the Appalachians, and it was adapted to a song called Knoxville Girl. Both songs, uh, (laughs) the lyrics stayed pretty much the same until Woody Guthrie stole the tune. Pretty Polly is a song about a man who murders his mistress. That's why you get that dark sound with that song. Because she refused his marriage proposal. Or in some tellings of the story, he murders her because she informs the singer that she is pregnant with his child. Woody, thank God, jettisoned the story but kept the music. And to that music he told a whole new story. It was 1941. The U.S. had not yet entered World War II. The country was still suffering through the latter years of the Great Depression, financial collapse, war atrocities, the Dust Bowl years. I don't know if you could find a more difficult period for Americans outside of the Civil War than those years between 1929 to 1945. And those were the years that Woody inhabited and when he wrote his most well-known songs. In 1941, Guthrie was only 28 years old. He was hoboing around the country looking for work to support his young family. When he landed a job for the BPA, they were building dams in the Pacific Northwest along the Columbia River to produce electricity to control flooding. But people were suspicious. They were unsupportive of this effort. And the BPA needed a marketing person who could go out there and write stories and songs about the Columbia River and the Columbia Valley and sell it to the people. Well, Woody Guthrie got the job. 
He got an emergency appointment contract. That was the only way he could actually get the job because an emergency appointment only lasted 30 days and he couldn't apply for a job because he wouldn't have been able to pass the background check when it was discovered that he had been participating with the American Communist Party. The contract lasted 30 days on a salary of $266.66 total. It was a good investment for the BPA. Woody would write 26 songs over those 30 days. Not a bad investment for $10 a song. And those songs would include Jackhammer Blues, Roll Columbia Roll, The Grand Coulee Dam, Hard Traveling, and the one you just heard, Pastors of Plenty. Pastors of Plenty is a pro-worker, pro-migrant, pro-fair wages song. As Guthrie saw it, there was no scarcity in this country. There was more than enough to go around for everyone. From the owner of those fields to the unskilled worker in the field. From the CEO to the kid in the mailroom. From the one who made the deals and the one who made the beds. Everyone who works should be able to live. That was Guthrie's position. And I don't know that he ever advocated for everyone making the same wage. But he constantly advocated for fairness, for working people, especially for those who were earning their paycheck by the sweat of their brow. And that might today in the 21st century fall on some ears as socialistic, even communistic. I don't think it should, but it might. And if that is you, wait until you hear the story that Jesus tells. Because it makes Woody Guthrie sound like Ayn Rand. The occasion for this story is a question posed by Simon Peter. And he is always good at being direct. Always good either through bravery or stupidity. Of asking the question that everyone else has on their mind but are afraid to ask. And his question, essentially, is this. What's in it for me? The disciples had given up everything to follow Jesus. They were the first to do so, the first ones on the job. What would they get for their trailblazing, hard work, and dedication efforts? And Jesus answers the question, as Anna has said, in a more indirect way. He answers the question with a parable, a story, about a vineyard, a vineyard, a landowner, a day's wage, and less than a day's wage. In first century Palestine, vineyards were essential to the economy. They were essential to the diet of the people. Very common, very important. So when the time of the grape harvest would come, entire communities would have to mobilize to get the grapes from the vine to the winery or into the barn. Landowners, vineyard managers, pressed by the demands of the harvest, would daily go out to the local marketplace where everyone had their wares, where everyone was selling their goods, where people would just stand around and wait for someone to hire them. They would go there and they would collect day laborers who would join the, join the effort for a single day's wage. And that's exactly what Jesus is describing here. And it still works that way in developing countries today. It still works that way in this country where day laborers will go to a Lowe's 
or a Home Depot and wait for the contractor to come along that can employ them for a day. Now, a variation of this exercise plays itself out in the community in which my family used to live, the city of L.A.J., Georgia, where I was just this past weekend. And that exercise has just begun in full swing. L.A.J., Georgia is the eastern capital, apple capital of the southeast. The orchards of that little mountain town grow about every variety of apple that you can think of. And they all ripen within a span of just a few weeks. Beginning in mid-August and going to about Thanksgiving, depending on how the weather goes, the apples from all those orchards have to get in from the market. Well, how many orchards are we talking about? In L.A.J., Georgia, Gilmer County, 30,000 acres of apple trees. If you've ever been to Walt Disney World, Walt Disney World would fit inside the collective orchards of Gilmer County. And they all got to get off the tree or they'll be wasted and they'll be gone. So what happens in this season right now, when we're so glad tourist, tourist season is over, theirs has just begun. What happens is the owners of the orchards there are forced by the harvest to hire everybody. If you've got a pulse, you've got a job. Get in here. They hire cousins they don't like. They hire their neighbors who they can't trust. They hire in-laws, stepbrothers, and they hire all the teenagers that they fired last year for poor performance. All is forgiven. Get back in here. There's too much to do. They advertise for migrant and seasonal workers. Latinos and immigrants come from South Georgia by the carloads. And for the most part, most part, they are welcomed because the need is so badly needed. And so these orchard owners beg, borrow, steal, recruit every able-bodied soul that they can find, and the rush of the harvest requires that they take desperate measures. If Woody Guthrie were alive today, he could go to L.J., Georgia, take out his guitar, and just watch what is happening, happening and write a whole new catalog of songs. Maybe I'll do that one day. Well, this is the exact situation that Jesus is describing in this parable. The kingdom of God is like a landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. There's this eagerness. I've got to have people in the fields harvesting these grapes or I won't get them at all. There's more than enough work to go, go around. These are pastures of plenty. And it's the pay that is handed out to these workers that frustrates what would otherwise be a very simple story. Jesus has a way of always putting the unexpected twist in his stories. That's why he is the master storyteller. We don't always recognize the twist. We have to dive back a little bit into the context because we're separated by so many centuries of language barriers and cultural barriers. But it's there. It works sort of like this. There's a, a British story that comes to mind that illustrates that perfect little twist. And I think way back in the day, Alfred Hitchcock may have even made one of his television shows about it. It's called The Betting Pool. This guy gets on a, on a uh, cruise and he's enjoying himself and he discovers that every morning they have a betting pool. All the old men gather up and they take bets on how many miles will the ship travel today. And on this particular day, the weather is terrible, the seas are rough, 
And he takes all the money he has, all the savings he has with him, and he bets that the ship will not make it more than 50 miles. And he goes to bed that night with the great comfort that he will soon be a rich man. He wakes up the next morning, the skies have cleared, and the captain is just smoking across the waters to make up time. So he has to figure out a way to stop the boat. He goes to the back of the boat. He says to himself, I'll accidentally fall overboard. And that way the ship will have to stop, come back to me and rescue me. So at the back of the ship, he he realizes someone has to see him fall. And there's this beautiful older lady sitting in a lounge and he walks up to her and makes friends and they talk for a little while. Then he goes to the rear of the ship and at the right moment, pitches himself overboard, falls overboard, starts screaming and waving for help. The lady gets up. She runs to the side of the ship. And she's sort of paralyzed about what to do. And she's watching. And the ship is getting further away. And the man is frantically waving. He's just a dot now on the horizon. And a nurse comes out and puts her arm around the old lady. And she says, dear, did you enjoy the sun today? She's a dementia patient. And she says, oh, I sure did. And the entertainment was wonderful. This man came out dressed like he was playing tennis, but he was a diver. We became such good friends because he talked to me and waved at me the entire time. And the nurse says, well, that's nice, dear. It's time to go to bed. That's the exact kind of twist that Jesus would tell. Sometimes comedic, sometimes tragic. Sometimes insulting to his listeners. Sometimes comforting to his listeners. All the time confounding to his listeners. Because nothing gets people's attention like a good story. And that's what he, what he does. The landowner in this story, inexplicably, and this, this is the term, pays those who were hired last and worked for an hour... The same amount that he paid those who had worked all day. Now, no matter which way you cut this, that's not fair, is it? Especially for those of us who have that good Protestant work ethic. Those of us with entrepreneurial capitalism given to us in our mother's milk. We know that this isn't right. We have such a visceral fear of the commies. Is Jesus a communist? I don't think so. But you may feel yourself thrown overboard here in just a minute. Imagine the scene as it plays out. The work day is over. The the hired and tired workers line up for their pay. The landowner asks that those hired last be paid first. He gives them a full day's wage. Meanwhile, down the line, you can just see it ripple through the little crowd while they're waiting. Did you see that? They got a full day's wage and they worked an hour. We're going to make a killing. This is going to be great. They get up to the human resources officer who's in charge at the desk handing out paychecks. They get the same wage, a day's wage, that those people got. And then a labor riot breaks out. The union rep shows up. Everybody starts lawyering up and filing suits. 
because they have not been treated fairly. The media descends upon the little vineyard with satellite trucks. Politicians start making speeches. And the landowner only talks to the people that he hired. I love what he says. Friends. He's got no beef with them whatsoever. Friends. I haven't been unfair. Isn't this what our contract said you would make today? Isn't this what you agreed upon? You're not upset because you didn't make more money than your contract. You're upset because I was generous to someone else that you think didn't deserve it. And that's the hot button right there. They're upset not because they failed to get their piece of the pie. They're upset because the landowner served pie to everybody. Especially those they thought didn't earn it. The backstory here is that the landowner understands that in that time and period, and every listener listening to this original story would have understood it as well. The landowner understood that unemployment for an itinerant worker for even just a single day would mean his family would not eat that day. He was generous because he wanted to take care of this person who had people depending upon him. And these late arriving laborers, they didn't get what they earned, they got what they needed. That's what this story is about. And it really does put a finger on the sore spot for those of us who talk about God's grace, but we don't always practice it. We talk about God's mercy for all, but we don't always extend it to those who need it the most. We turn to each other every Sunday here and say, you are welcome. And then we would like to put an asterisk to that, depending on who it is we turn to and talk to. I'm not saying your neighbors here are enemies. I'm just saying that all means all, and we don't always mean all when we say all. Right? Let me shock you in the same way <laughs> I think that this would have shocked Jesus' listeners. Suppose you get to heaven one day. I <laughs> suppose, like you're not going to make it. I'm sorry, I didn't mean it like that. When you get to heaven one day, better? You get through the pearly gates. St. Peter's there. He welcomes you in. You hug Jesus first thing. You look around. There's Mother Teresa, as you expect. Billy Graham, your sweet grandmother. Maybe the pastor that first introduced you to faith. Your childhood dog. Forget all these people that say dogs don't go to heaven. They got to be there. They got to be there. And so you start taking a tour with everybody. This is great. I'm in heaven. And as you look around, you, you bump into Ted Bundy. You bump into Genghis Khan. You bump into Timothy McVeigh. Jeffrey Dahmer. Your ex-wife. I don't know. You know let your imagination run wild. I mean, just conjure up that person or persons or group of people that in your mind, there is no way in heaven or hell they should be there. You got them? But there they are. 
What are you going to do? Call the president of the HOA? And have your neighbors removed? You're going to file a petition with God? Are you going to turn, walk back to the gate and tell St. Peter, well, this is just not as much fun as I thought it was going to be? What are you going to do? My old friend Landon Saunders says it like this. Figuring out who is in and who is out is just too much work. It's too heavy of a burden. So I just try to treat every person I meet as if they just might be sitting beside me at the table for all of eternity. (laughs) What a change of perspective that would, how it would help us in this world. One more story and I'm done, and it's from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce. And you know that I love this book if you've heard me me talk any length of time. Oversimplified, the the book is about a a bus that leaves this dirty, dingy town, which is Lewis's symbolism for hell. And they all get on a bus, and they travel this infinite distance, and they unload in this strange world that's heaven... But they're not fit for heaven. When they get out of the bus, they can't even walk on the grass because it pierces them like needles. And when raindrops fall, they're so thin, so nothing that it's like bullets piercing them. Uh, the, The light is too bright. They're just unfit. But this is their opportunity. You can escape all of your addictions and you can escape all this bad and unsundry things that you have done, this is your opportunity to transition to be made fit for heaven. And these people come out to visit them and to welcome them. And they're called the shining people. And they're just massive, rippled with with muscles and bright faces. And they're gorgeous people. And they're the people they used to know on earth. But now they're transformed. And one of the stories goes like this in an early scene of the book. A man gets off the bus He recognizes that it's some kind of heaven. He's wondering what it's all about. And he's met by an old employee of his, one of the shining people whose name is Les. And the man is absolutely dumbfounded to see Les. So youthful, so bright, so transformed. More so, he is so surprised to see Les at all in heaven. Because Les had been an awful person. The dialogue goes like this. The man says, this isn't right, Les. You remembered, you murdered Jack. What about poor Jack? And Les answers, of course I murdered him. But it's all right now. Jack is here. You will meet him soon yourself if you will stay. He sends his love. And the man from earth just cannot stand it. And he screams back, what I'd like to understand is what you are doing here. As pleased as punch as you are, you bloody murderer. While I've been down in that little town like a pigsty for all of these years. And the man blusters and argues, ending his protest by saying, I want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. And then in a stroke of genius, C.S. Lewis puts these words in Les's mouth. Please ask for the bleeding charity. Everything 
is here for the asking, but nothing here can be bought. Murdering old Jack wasn't the worst thing I did. I murdered you every day in my heart for years. And that is why I have been the one sent to you now to ask your forgiveness and to be your servant as long as you need one and longer if you will have me. And the poor man from the gray town can't take it. He says, I'm not making pals with a murderer, let alone taking lessons from one. You tell them and you tell God that I'm not coming. I'd rather be damned than go along with someone like you. I'll not go sniveling along on charity tied to your apron strings. I'll go home. That's what I'll do. And he made his way back to the bus. Man. The kingdom of God is not about fairness. It's not about justice or earning what is rightfully yours. It's not about what's in it for you. The kingdom of God is only for the asking. The kingdom of God is all about grace. And if you got in at sunrise or you stumbled in at sunset just before the sun fell over the horizon, if you've been on the job your whole life trying to love Jesus and serve Jesus, or if you get there at the very end, If you've been a Christian and consider yourself a Christian from the time you were in diapers or you became a Christian wrapped literally in your death clothes, we all walk through the same door. And it is the charity and grace of God himself.